Thank you, Jen. She had offered to do that yesterday, so I'm glad that you <laughs> mentioned it. So, all right, so Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29 is where we're going to be today that Jen just read for us. We all depend on promises in our lives. Our job promises to give us a paycheck in return for faithful labor. Our car mechanic promises to put clean oil back in the car after he drains the old, dirty oil. And grocery stores promise to give us food that's accurate based on the labels and to make sure it's not expired and things like that. And today we're going to look at a promise that God makes to people in the Old Testament as well as to us today. As we continue going verse by verse through the book of Galatians, we're approaching the middle of this letter, which is the center of Paul's doctrinal teaching on justification by faith and salvation by faith. Chapters 1 and 2 were a lot of personal information about Paul and his ministry. Chapters 1 and 2 were personal. Chapters 3 and 4 are very doctrinal, as we'll see today. And then chapters 5 and 6, when we get there, are very applicational, give us lots of things that we can do to apply our faith. So let's start by reading uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 today together. And this, these two verses talk about the seed of Abraham. And so we're going to read Galatians first and then go to um, Genesis and read a little bit more of Galatians and go back to Genesis. Because I want us to look at some of these um, Old Testament quotations that he quotes here in their context. So we can understand what they meant to them as well as to us today. So Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 16 says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Verse 16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. And what he's saying here in verse 15 is that God's covenant is permanent and can't be changed, just as a modern-day human covenant can't be changed. Paul here says that what's done is done. A promise is permanent according to God. And he starts with a contemporary example saying, I speak in terms of human relations. In other words, if two humans make a covenant, you can't just go back and change it and make things to it. Um, it is permanent, and so it is with God. He says, no one sets a covenant aside, and no one adds conditions to it. No one makes a covenant void. Once the covenant has been made, even among humans, you can't void it or add conditions to it. Therefore, God's promise is unchangeable. Then in verse 16, he tells us God's covenant is a promise that one of Abraham's descendants would be a savior. And he clarifies who that savior would be by quoting some parts of Genesis here, but then clarifying them for us. And in a moment, we're going to look at some of those passages there in Genesis. Um, but here, what he's saying is that this promise is not dependent on Abraham's behavior. As we see in the text here in verse 16, he says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. These promises were spoken to Abraham. This is a simple passive idea in the Greek text where Abraham is the recipient of the verb that's described here. Abraham doesn't do anything in order to get God's promise. Abraham just receives what is spoken to him. 
Abraham was given a promise by God. It's not something he did or had to earn. And here it gets a little confusing. The, the translation Jen read was a little clear when it says in the middle of verse 16, he does not say, is what mine says, and the he there is referring to God as the one who spoke these promises to Abraham. If you have an NIV Bible or a New Living Translation, they probably say uh, scripture, being that it's scripture that says this promise. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. So here, Paul takes Old Testament scripture and he quotes it in a way in order to clarify its intended meaning. And that intended meaning was here in verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Paul here is quoting what God has spoken to Abraham many times, and that we even read last week, but he says that that descendant from Abraham is going to ultimately be Christ. It's not a group of people, it's going to be one single person, and that's Christ. But God's covenant did not start with Abraham. It actually started with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So if you have a Bible and would like to turn there to Genesis 3, we're going to read about this seed that is predicted to Adam and Eve through the serpent. So Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read from Genesis again a little later. So if you have your bulletin, you're welcome to leave it in Genesis if it makes it easier to flip back there after we're done reading. So Genesis chapter 3, and you're likely familiar with what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve listen to Satan, and they eat fruit from the tree they're not supposed to eat from. And as a result, they're banished from the Garden of Eden, and God gives a curse to Adam. He gives a curse to Eve, but he also gives a curse to Satan here in this passage. And I'm going to read it for you. Genesis chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you, so God is still talking to Satan, to the serpent, to Satan, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. I notice there in, in verse 15 is the main one I want us to look at. It says, I will put enmity between you, which is Satan, and between the woman, which is Eve. And between your seed and her seed, I shall bruise you on the head, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the seed. In other words, Satan will strike the heel of Eve's descendant and cause him to suffer. And who do you think that would be that he's predicting here? Christ. And Christ will strike the head of the serpent and cause him death. And who is that serpent that we know of? Is Satan. And so most people would say this is the first prediction of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, here in Genesis 3.15, when God predicts that there'll be these descendants coming from Eve, the Lion of Israel, 
through Judah, Jesus Christ, but then there'll be this wicked nation as well that ultimately becomes the world, and that will be Satan's descendants and Satan's seed that he talks about here. So what Paul is quoting in Galatians 3, 15 and 16 is the promise given to Abraham about the seed, but the prophecy has already been given in Genesis 3, 15 that we have read just here. And so as we go back to Galatians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 talk more about this promise and this seed and this promise. And I've given the heading there in your notes, sacrifice for this section, because it talks about the promise given to Abraham and how it was an unconditional covenant. And it was an unconditional covenant because of a sacrifice that Abraham and God share in Genesis 15. So I want to read uh, Galatians 3, 17 and 18, and then we'll go to Galatians 15 and see what he's talking about here. He says in verse 17, Galatians 3, 17, What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So the promise is not changed through the law because the promises of God given to Abraham are unconditional. It's an unconditional covenant. And Paul makes that important point here that the law came later, but that doesn't mean it changes the, the promise which had already been given. But how do we know the promise was unconditional that God gave to Abraham? How do we know it was an unconditional promise? Well, first, here in Galatians, it says, the law does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. So Paul tells us clearly in verse 17, the law does not invalidate a covenant that God has previously made. God is the one that's doing this. It's his promise that he made to Abraham, and it's independent of Abraham. And a second reason this promise is an unconditional promise, an unconditional covenant, is based on Genesis 15. So if you have a Bible and want to turn to Genesis 15, we're going to read about this unconditional covenant that God makes with Abraham, this unconditional promise in Genesis 15. And last week we read Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out of the land of Ur to go to this new land. And he tells him, when you get there, you'll have so many descendants that you won't be able to count them. But then we also read Genesis 15, where Abraham has been in the land for a while, while, but he still doesn't have any descendants. So he's not sure about that promise. Is it still going to happen? How is it going to happen? So he asks God about it. And God gives another vision to Abraham that says, no, you will have a son and he will be a great nation and then we read about how abraham believed in the promise of god and god counted it to him as righteousness that was genesis 15 6 a comment by moses the author but the story continues which we didn't read last week and it talks directly about this promise some more in genesis chapter 15 verse 7 the story continues and he said to him this is god speaking to abraham I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. 
Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. So this was an ancient custom at that time where two people would use to seal a covenant. They'd go get some sacrifices, they'd cut the animals in half, they'd put one half on this side, they'd put one half on this side, and then the two people making the covenant would walk between the animal sacrifices together as a way to show they were making a promise to each other. They would walk through them side by side with the sacrifices on each side. That was a custom of Abraham's time. But God adds a little twist to this customary ritual at that time. If we continue reading, verse 12 says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, for they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So God intervenes in this customary ritual here, and he puts Abraham asleep, and he predicts the 400 years of slavery of Abraham's descendants that they would endure in Egypt. And while he's asleep, God does something. He continues here, verse 17. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, so Abraham's still asleep on the side over here. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I will give this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river the Euphrates. Instead of God and Abraham passing through those sacrifices together like someone would expect, God puts Abraham asleep, leaves him there, and then God passes through those sacrifices by himself, showing that this is going to be an independent covenant of Abraham. It's not based on Abraham doing anything. He's sitting there asleep, and God says, I'm going to do this for you, Abraham. And God is seen here as a smoking oven and a flaming torch, he's called here. And so God makes it clear, I'm making an unconditional covenant with you, Abraham. You just lay there asleep, I promise to do for you and your descendants what I said I would do. So that's the unconditional promise that God makes to Abraham that Paul is talking about here in Galatians. So each time we read that promise and it's unconditional and can't be changed, it's because of that sacrifice that was described there in Genesis 15. And all these talk about promises reminds me of two jokes about promises that I like, okay? Two jumper cables walk into a bar, and the bartender looks at the two jumper cables and says, you two guys look like trouble, but I, I will serve you, you just have to promise you won't start anything. Okay? That's the first promise joke. Another one, a little girl asked her father, Daddy, do all the fairy tales begin with once upon a time? He replied, no, daughter, there is a whole series of fairy tales that begin with, if elected, I promise. <laughs> so I like that. 
So returning to Galatians to talk about this promise, Paul uses this discussion of Abraham to tell us that God's covenant was unconditional and could not be changed by the law. But Paul still has to address the questions. What was the purpose of the law? Why was it given? Do we still follow it? Why or why not? What's the deal with it? So he discusses that in verses 19 through 22, talking about sin. And in these four verses, Paul tells us why the law was given, but also why the law was inferior to the promise. And the law was given for two reasons, according to this passage. It was given because of people's sins. Verse 19 says, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So Paul tells us the purpose of the law was added because of people's transgressions here in this translation. It was given to show them their sins and also to restrain them from sinning even more. In verse 22 it says, But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And here when it says the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, the verb for shut up means to enclose, confine, imprison, um, to capture on all sides. N.T. A.T. Robertson talks about how it's kind of like a fish in a net. And I remember going fishing with my dad as a kid a lot. That was the thing we used to love to do. And as you go fishing, if you get a fish on the edge, just because the fish bites it doesn't mean it's going to end up in your boat, right? You got to set the hook, you got to reel it in, you got to get it in the boat, and sometimes the fish gets off. Sometimes your line breaks. Sometimes um, the lure comes out of the line or whatever that might be. But as a kid, I learned really early, if you could get the fish in the net, that was game over. The fish was going to end up in the boat, right? Because in the net, the net grabs the fish and gets it all on all sides, and the fish gets tangled up and he can't get out. And that's the same picture here, is that scripture has shut up everyone under sin. Everyone is enclosed in sin through the law, and that's what the law did. This verse declares the whole world to be a prisoner of sin. And this matches other parts of scripture that we know. Psalm 143, 2, for in your sight no man living is righteous. Romans 3, 9, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Chuck Swindoll in his commentary, he says, The law was never meant to provide a way of salvation, but to reveal our need for salvation. So the law was given for two purposes, to show people their sin. It was also given to preserve the seed of Christ until he came. Now notice in verse 19, it says that, the law served until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, part of the promise of the law was to make Israel look different than all the other nations. The Ten Commandments is given in Exodus 20, but in Exodus 19, God reveals to Moses why he's giving them the law. Exodus 19:6 says that, I want you to be my holy nation, my kingdom of priests. God tells them, he's given them this law in the Old Testament to keep them unique and distinct from all the other pagan nations because it was through the seed of Abraham that someone was going to uh, come to be their savior. But there's also two reasons the law was inferior to the promise. 
Two reasons the law was inferior to the promise. One, it was given through angels, therefore it involved mediators. Verse 19 and 20 touch on that. He says, it was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is for only one. So the law is inferior to the promise because God made that promise independent of Abraham and everybody else. But the law is based on Moses and angels and agreements and things like that. And here it says God is only one. He doesn't need a mediator to do what he has promised. The promise was unilateral and was given to man directly without a mediator. God alone had responsibility to fulfill it. The mere presence of a mediator implies that the law was inferior to the promise. So the law was inferior to the promise because it involved a mediator. Second, because the law could not give eternal life. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. Like we saw earlier, the purpose of the law was, was not to give life. The purpose was to show them their sins and show Israel their need for a savior. This is because if the law could save people and give them eternal life, then Jesus didn't have to die. Jesus' death would have been pointless. But if the law couldn't save, how could a person be saved? Paul moves on to that point next and talks about salvation in verses 23 through 25. He says first that the law protected Israel by guarding them in verse 23. It says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to faith, which was later to be released. To be revealed, sorry. And when it says before faith came, it means knowledge of faith of Jesus Christ for salvation by grace. Because we know Abraham was saved by faith. We talked about that last week. Habakkuk even told us that in Habakkuk 2.4, that the righteous man shall live by faith. But here, Paul's talking about is the faith in Christ for salvation, which raises an important point. Faith has always been how believers were saved in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the content of that faith sometimes changed slightly over time. You mean people were saved in different ways? No, they were always saved by faith, but the content of that faith sometimes changed. For example, Abraham didn't know as much about God as the disciples did. And the disciples didn't know as much about Jesus until after Jesus had resurrected from the dead and went to heaven, right? It's the same kind of principle we can think of today, is that there might be someone that walks into church and he has never heard the gospel before, he hears the gospel, and that he can get saved based on his faith in Jesus Christ. So he gets saved on that day, he's saved based on his faith, but after that he starts attending church each week, he joins a midweek Bible study, he serves in church, he has some quiet devotion time with God, and he does that for 30 years. After 30 years of faithfully following Christ, his faith is going to be very different, both in what he knows about God and understands about God, and also in his strength of faith and how he is committed to God. So he was still always saved by faith, but the content of that faith is slightly different. 
And so that's what Paul is talking about here when he says the faith of Jesus Christ has come. We've always been, they've always been saved based on faith, but it was a new understanding of who God was that they had not understood before. So verse 23 says the law protected them by guarding them. And it says also that they were, the law's protection for them was before faith, that we were kept in custody under the law. Just like Exodus 19, 6 says, I want you to be my holy, unique, distinct kingdom of priests. That was one of the purposes of the law was to keep them in custody under the law and to protect them until the Savior could come. Then verse 24 says the law protected Israel by tutoring them. Verse 24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And so the Greek word used here in verse 24 for tutor is difficult to translate into English because in Roman times, families would purchase a slave and that slave would be a tutor or guardian or disciplinarian for a child that was six years to 13 years old. And it was that person's job, that tutor's job or that guardian's job to take that child to and from school, to protect that child and make sure nothing bad happened to the child. But it was also a job of that slave to train that child, to teach him what was right and to make sure that he was or she was growing to be um, the person that the parents wanted him or her to be. It was kind of like a, maybe a full-time nanny in our terminology today. Probably not the same thing, but that was the purpose of the law. The law was a guardian or disciplinarian for Israel until Christ came. But the law has been removed now that faith comes. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The law, which was the tutor, has served its purpose. It's guarded Israel and kept them unique and distinct until Christ has come. So with the law having led to Christ and the seed arriving, it means that those who place faith in Christ look and act differently than the rest of the world. Just as the law caused Israel to look and act very differently than the rest of the pagan nations around them, those who have faith in Christ too are supposed to look different. And that's where Paul goes next, and he talks about sanctification last, verses 26 through 29. And sanctification is just a word that describes our Christian growth, how we grow as Christians. And he gives three applications after this very dense doctrinal section here. I hope you can agree it's been a little dense and difficult to work through, but we've done our best, and thanks for hanging in there with me. But here he gives three basic things we can do based on this doctrine he has shared. Number one, live differently than the world around you because you're baptized in Christ and clothed in Christ, is what he says. Live differently than the world around you. Under the law, Israel was treated like children, little preteens. They had to be guarded and protected. But now that we have faith, we are full-grown adults and inheritors of the promise that's given to us. Verse 26 says, For you all are sons of God, no longer children that need a tutor. You all are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But as grown adults, that means we need to act like it now that faith has come. Verse 27, he continues, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. 
Now in verse 27, notice two things that make it so that we're supposed to live differently. First, we are baptized into Christ. That happens by faith. And this isn't water baptism that sometimes is described in the Bible, but is a spiritual baptism that occurs when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we are all made to drink of one Spirit. That's the spiritual baptism that we all experience. It's also discussed in Romans uh, chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. He says, We have been buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's that spiritual baptism that we all experience, that we die with Christ and come back to life again. So Christians really have two baptisms. We have this spiritual baptism that he talks about here. And then we have a water baptism that is a public display of the inward change that already has occurred. The second reason he gives us that our behavior should be differently in verse 27 is that they are clothed in Christ. Or they are clothed with Christ. This means righteous conduct. This means we must be different. In the Roman society, one of the ways they would show that teenagers became adults as they would give them this big toga that they got to wear around and that clothing that toga was a sign that they were now grown adults and they were accountable on their own and in the same way we as believers when we're clothed in Christ and given this clothing as adults our conduct and our character should also match that for a period of time I worked at a nonprofit and I uh, always took Sundays off so I could be in church obviously and then um, so people kind of got to know why I didn't work on Sundays because the whole program ran on Sundays, but I wasn't there. And it was because I was at church, kind of word started to get out. And so I invited my boss to church with us once. Um, and he actually came. He came and brought his wife and his two little kids. And my boss at that time, he was a former Marine, big, strong guy, very outspoken, very loud, kind of ran over everybody at work. He was a little hard sometimes to, to get along with. I got along with him fine, but not everybody else did. And as a Marine, he had quite the vocabulary, <laughs> if you catch what I'm saying. Um, but he came to church, which was really cool. So he came twice with his kids, and then he started telling everybody that we worked with, all 30 or 40 people, I go to Christopher's church. I'm part of Christopher's church. And so for a part of me wanted to be excited that he was telling everybody, but a part of me was almost embarrassed that uh, his behavior wasn't really the behavior you would want for your marketing material for a church, right? But everybody's welcome at church, of course, but I just had this little internal conflict because I'm thinking, if I'm trying to get the other 29 people to come to church, and they, you know, I don't know. So, but our conduct is supposed to match the clothing that Christ gives us to wear. And as believers, we should act differently. People should be able to look at us and be recognized we should be able to recognize us because of the way we act, the way we interact with people, how we dress, how we spend our money, or how we utilize our time. Those should show the world that we are saved by faith. The second application he gives here is to help your church family because you are all one in Christ. Verse 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ 
Jesus. Now, my job as your pastor is not just to teach you the Bible, but also to equip you to study the Bible on your own. And this verse gives me permission to do two things here related to that. One, as you read books of the Bible, I encourage you to have a pen that doesn't bleed through the paper and read books like Galatians or ones that are short and read through them and start to notice things. And as you do, mark them. So, for example, as I've read Galatians, I notice law a lot. So I make this little diagram that looks like the Ten Commandments. I notice the word gospel a lot, so I make a little heart around it. I notice the word promise a lot, so I circle that. I notice the word spirit a lot, so I put a, a box around that, just as a helpful way to, for you to start to notice what Scripture is saying. That's something I encourage you to do so that you get to understand what's the message of the whole book? What's the author really trying to say, not just in one verse, but throughout the whole book? The second thing I encourage you to do, as you come to verses like this, like 28, you always want to interpret single verses like this in light of the message of the entire book. What's the entire book saying, and how does this one verse sit within it? For example, here in Galatians 3.28, you could read 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You could read that and say, well, there's neither male or female. We are all the same. You could say gender is fluid. Gender doesn't exist. You could pick your own gender because doesn't Paul say there's no male or female? Isn't that what the text says? If you take that single little verse in isolation, you can make it say what you want in that way. But that's not the meaning Paul is trying to portray here. The message of this entire book that we've studied, we've been going through, is that we're all saved by faith. Jew, Gentile, circumcised, not, slave, free, we're all saved based on the same faith in Christ Jesus. So when you study the Bible, each verse is embedded within a paragraph, and that paragraph's within a chapter, and the chapter's within the message of the book. And I encourage you, as you come across verses like that, how does this verse match with the entire book is trying to say because you could take that verse and make it say something that it doesn't say and even people do that but that's not the message that paul is trying to give us here it's, his message is we're all saved by faith and it doesn't matter so back to the application point here that we have for our lives paul writes that we're all one in christ we're all the same because we are saved in in the same way faith and we're saved by the same person christ and there's this little clip from um, J. Vernon McGee I really like that he talks about this verse. And J. Vernon McGee, if you're not familiar with him, he does the Through the Bible radio ministry. He lived from 1904 to 1988, which meant he lived through the civil, not, the civil rights movement. And all the, is it the civil rights movement? I'm getting, all right. And all the difficulties that led to that. And not just that, he lived in Texas and Tennessee, right in the middle of everything. And I came across his words on this verse this week that really stuck out to me because he was a tall, thin, privileged white man living in Texas and Tennessee. Yet he said this about Galatians 3.28. He says, in Christ are no racial lines. Any man in Christ is my brother, and I don't care about the color of his skin. It is the color of his heart that interests me. There are a lot of white people walking around with black hearts, my friend, and they are not my brothers. It is only in Christ Jesus that we are all made one. Thank God I receive letters from folk of every race. 
They call me brother, and I call them brother, because we are brothers. We are one in Christ, and we will be together throughout eternity. I found that encouraging that someone with that background and that heritage would take such a strong stance here, that we're all one in Christ. And because we're one in Christ, we need to help each other. That means, which is really the, the point of this, this application, we help each other because we are one in Christ. So when the pastor is supposed to arrive to Moses Lake at the end of June, and it's supposed to be 116 degrees out, and people from church show up and they help me move in. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, you want to wait until 7 or 8 o'clock? No, we'll be there at 3.30. It's the hottest time of the day. But we, we did it. People from church helped. Or then when the pastor has to move a month later again, the same guys show up again and they help and they say, oh no, we'll do that too and help you and that doesn't look like it's going to fit right. Let's go to Ace and we'll fix that for you. Like, geez, these people are really nice to, to help in that way. And then someone else says, oh, you've got a three-year-old. I'll come over and I'll watch him while you guys move. Um, so that's how we, we help each other because we are all one in Christ. Number three, the third application here is love all believers everywhere because they are your brothers and sisters. Verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. It doesn't matter who your family is, what your job is, or where you live. If you belong to Christ, you are with him and are descendants of Abraham. Even Gentiles are descendants of Abraham because Christ is the seed of Abraham, and we have faith in Christ. Therefore, we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Some of us might be physical descendants of Abraham, literal Jews. Some might be spiritual, like we probably are. But it means we're all brothers and sisters based on our faith in Christ. So we should love everyone everywhere that we know is a Christian. One woman I was talking to recently told me about how she was working at her secular job and she had another co-worker that she knew was a Christian, but the co-worker was really difficult to get along with. And even mean at times. And the woman had this trouble trying to connect with her and get along with her. It's like, she's a Christian, shouldn't she be nicer? And then my friend eventually just said, you know, I'm gonna spend eternity in heaven with her, so I might as well figure out how to get along with her right now in our job. And I thought that was a good perspective. That even if we have Christians that vote for different political candidates than us, even if they maybe don't pay all their taxes like they're supposed to, if they don't follow COVID guidelines or whatever that might be, they might be a vegetarian and we love to eat meat. We're all one in Christ and we should love each other because of that faith that we share. So as we wrap up our time together, I've titled the message today, When God Follows Through. Because I know you have had people that have made promises to you that they did not keep. They didn't follow through on the promises that they made to you. A couple of examples. I vow to love you till death do us part. Can turn into, I'm unhappy, I don't love you anymore, I want a divorce. I'll never drink alcohol again. Can turn into, just one won't hurt here and there. I promise to never watch porn again can turn into I need it because a promise of I want kids when I get married can turn into I, I don't like kids I don't want them anymore I'll never touch drugs again 
turns into, I don't know where those family heirlooms disappeared to because they were stolen to pay for drugs. But God always keeps his promises. And how do we know? Because of his word that tells us. God made a promise to Eve in Genesis 3, and then a promise to Abraham, and then to Moses and the nation of Israel, and then eventually fulfilled it through Jesus. And God kept his promise through Jesus. And we get to spend life forever with him in heaven because of that promise. Because God always follows through. Let's pray.